Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for your prayers and uh, reaching out to me and my family during this time of loss. Uh, if you hadn't heard, my nephew passed away uh, last week. Uh, while it was somewhat expected, it wasn't expected at this particular time. Uh, but thank you so much uh, for praying for us. It is only because of our faith in a great Savior and His resurrection that allows us to have hope in such moments. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that you have sent an incredible Savior that we have been singing about all service, that we have acknowledged the reading of the Word, that we have prayed to. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith as we get into this lesson this morning. We pray that it would strengthen us, Lord, that we would have more trust, more confidence, more love for our Savior and what he has done for us. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you will, please turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 12. Today we are embarking on a study of one of the most fascinating figures in the Bible, that of Abram, which in Hebrew means exalted father. This is the same man who will later have his name changed to Abraham that we spoke about in Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 3. And that will happen in Genesis chapter 17. His name will become Abraham, which means father of multitudes. But as we study this man, I want to remind you once again that while he becomes a focal point in this portion of the story, he is not the main character. Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, is the hero of this story. As we look at Abram's life, we will find many characteristics to admire and a few traits to despise. Now, personally, I like the man a lot because I see so much of myself in him. But he is not the hero, nor should we put that expectation upon him. God is the hero. And that'll be very apparent as we look at Abram's life. Now, starting back in chapter 11, verse 27, we began a new book or section in Genesis. This is considered the sixth book in this volume. And while Abram is the central character, we're given the line of Terah because Abram's relatives will, uh, will feature throughout the rest of this book. But I've already mentioned previously that in chapter 12, the calling of Abram is a pivotal point in our story. Here is where God begins to designate a single individual and his wife who will produce his chosen people to represent him on the earth for the next two millennia. Now, I'd like to cover this entire chapter in a single sermon. I think we need to examine all of it in order to see the type of man whom God calls and the type of God who called him. In fact, that's the title of this sermon, which you can find on your outline in the worship guide. And if you're looking at that, you can see that we're going to cover this chapter in four sections. The promise made to Abram, Abram's response to that promise, a test concerning the promise, and we will conclude with our own personal observations. These are items that should be our takeaway from the text. So once again, that's promise, response, test, and observations. So let's begin with the promise that's found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Some people call this God's first covenant or pre-covenant with Abram. Now, if you remember from Noah in chapter 9, we said covenants are not contracts. We tend to think of them that way, such as I will do this for you, and then in exchange you'll do something for me. 
But the real intention behind a covenant is that one individual makes a promise to another. So covenants are promises. And there'll be much more significant form of this promise that God makes to Abram later in chapter 15. But we need to see that in verse 1, it is Yahweh that initiates this promise to Abram. God speaks first. As far as the narrator is concerned, Abram had nothing to do initially with the Lord speaking to him. We've already shown when we were in chapter 11 that Abram is 75 years old, married to Sarah. They are childless and are pagan. There's not a single word describing his character prior to God's calling in his life. From a human perspective, it would look like God chose him at random. But we saw a couple of weeks ago that is not a possibility as God had a plan for salvation before the world began. And Abram was his sovereign choice in implementing that plan. This promise is given in poetic form. Now, sadly, we use the ESV, and for whatever reason, those translators chose not to arrange these verses in poetic form in English. But the other modern translations do, such as the New King James or the New American Standard and the New International Version. Such a poem would make this promise memorable. But the poetry is not near as important as the parts of the promise. And there are two here. There is Abraham's part, and there is Yahweh's part of the promise. Abram is to go. He is to leave his land and his relatives and the wealth of his father. And this was absolutely necessary. If God is going to start something anew with Abram, there has to be a clear divorce or division from Abram's previous life to the new life that God will provide for him. That is Abram's part. He is to leave. And such a calling is still made on people today. Now, for those of us growing up in Christian homes, we, we've not had as many opportunities to make such a dramatic change. But there are others that have. When a Muslim or a Hindu or a follower of Shintoism comes to faith, it usually means leaving everything behind. Family members being written out of the will and possibly even one's nationality as they must live somewhere else for safety. And of course, many of our missionaries are, are called to leave home and land and to go abroad to a different culture, knowing that their children will rarely see grandparents or, or have the same cultural similarities that they had growing up. So we should not view Abram's calling as easy. It would have been a difficult decision to make. After all, Abram is to go to a land that Yahweh will show him. He has no clue where that is. The sacrifice is significant. That is Abram's part. Next is Yahweh's part. If Abram leaves behind this current life, this is what Yahweh will do in the departure. We see Yahweh's personal responsibility in this as we see the phrase, I will, five times. And that's accompanied with the word blessing, which is also invoked five times. If Abram follows Yahweh's commands, he will receive nothing but blessings. And essentially, there are four promises made here. First, Yahweh will make Abram into a great nation. The Hebrew word for nation used here is goy, which pertains to a geographic location with boundaries, not just a great people group that will come from that nation, but the emphasis is on establishing a nation in the land. If God wanted to focus on the people, he would have used the word ayam, which refers to an ethnic group. The great people will come a little later in the story, 
But this first promise, Abram will have a great geographic nation. The second promise is God will make Abram's name great, meaning not just well-known throughout the world, but a reputation that extends past his life. Now, we need to keep in contrast the, the Babel incident in chapter 11. Remember there, the humans wanted to make a name for themselves, and God said no. But here, God will make Abram's name great. And this is royal language. God used similar words with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to this. This is Nathan being told this by Yahweh. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And we hear the same royal language used in Psalm 72, verse 17, as Solomon prays for the future king of Israel. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And in future chapters in Genesis, we will see that Abram is promised by Yahweh that kings will come from him in chapter 17. And in chapter 23, the Hittites treat him as royalty as they call him the prince of God. So Abram won't just perform deeds that will improve his renown. It will be Yahweh, Yahweh himself, that will make Abram's name great. Third, God promises Abram protection in verse 3. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. God has Abram's back. And we're about to see an example of this in just a minute. But the Lord gives Abram protection and security. And this leads to the final promise here. Wherever Abram goes, he will be a blessing to all. He is not only a receptacle of blessing, he will also be a transmitter of blessing. We'll see that wherever Abraham lives, life improves for the people around him. And as a side, this should be viewed as the same for the Christian. Wherever Christians reside, they should be transmitters of blessings to others. They should be conduits of common grace as they seek to hold back sin and promote the gospel. God promises Abram, if he goes to this land, he will make him a great nation, a great name, have security, and be a great blessing to all. And in verse 4, we see Abram's response. He went as he was ordered, but not at first. According to the New Testament Jewish Christians, Abram received this order from God when he lived in Ur, before his family moved to Herod. Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, he said these words, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, not a single Jew in Jerusalem disputed that point in Stephen's sermon. It was only when he got to Jesus that they got angry. 
So it's not until when Abram gets to Haran that he responds completely to God's call. It's also in verses 4 through 6 that Abram leaves his family, which at this point would have been his father's household and his remaining brother Nahor, and he also leaves his land and his father's possessions. He only takes his own servants and the, his own possessions and his nephew Lot, and he's directed to the land of Canaan. Now, this would be the area of present-day Israel and Palestine. And it would have been inhabited by other people groups. In fact, that's pointed out here. These would have been produced by Noah's grandson, Canaan, who is listed in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 20. Later on, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses' spies report that this is not just a fruitful land, but these people groups that were living there were formidable opponents. In fact, they were scared of them. Then in verse 6, Abram makes his way to Shechem. And an additional fifth promise is made to him here. God appears to Abram again in verse 7, and he tells him, To your offspring I will give this land. So there is now a specific promise to Abram and Sarai that there will be an offspring, or literally in Hebrew, a seed, one that will come from them. Despite their age and circumstances of childlessness, they will produce a child. And this heir or heirs will be given the land. Now, it's not going to be until chapter 13, verse 17, that God reveals that the land will belong to Abram as well. But this land is promised to his seed. And these two themes of seed and land will be apparent from here through the end of Genesis. God will first deal with the promised land for Abram, and then he will deal with the promised seed. Now, Abram's response to such a promise is one of worship. And this is the first instance of Abram personally worshiping Yahweh. And he builds an altar there at Shechem. And this location is going to have national significance to Israel throughout the nation's history. There will be a city near here where Jacob's daughter will be defiled in chapter 34. It's also here next to this same tree that Jacob will bury Laban's household gods in chapter 35. It will also be here that Joshua will post the law for the people after the conquest in Joshua 24. No doubt he's going to do this to remind them of the promise made to Abram that this land belongs to his descendants. And from here, Abram will make his way back to Bethel, where he will build a second altar. Bethel is where Yahweh will appear to Abram's grandson, Jacob. But Abram chooses it now as a new place to worship Yahweh. Later, it's going to even rival Jerusalem as a place of worship when the kingdom splits into the northern and southern sections. And then Abram moves further south to the region of the Negev. It's a very arid area of the country. There's no destination yet. It seems to be just a tour of God revealing the land that he's going to give to Abram. This will be the same route that Jacob will later follow after he deceives Esau, and the same route that the Israelites will follow in the conquest. This will be the land that God gives to Abram. So far, so good, until we get to verses 10 and 20. Now, we should note that from here to the end of the chapter, there are no words from Yahweh, nor does the narrator make any comment on Abram's choices. In verse 10, there is a test for Abram. There is a famine in the land. 
And rather than trust God's promise that he would bless and protect this man in the land, Abram chose to go where he knows there is food. Abram goes to Egypt. And once again, rather than trusting in God's promise of security and protection and that he would be a blessing to others, he hatches a plan. Despite the fact that Sarah is nearly 65 years old, she is still considered beautiful. Now, just a reminder, for most of the patriarchs, though beyond childbearing years, she is still considered middle age. She is so attractive that Abram fears that the Egyptians will kill him and take his wife. And so the pair scheme to tell a half-truth. They will say that Sarah is Abram's sister and not his wife. And that is partially true. According to Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, Sarai is his half-sister, either born from another woman by his father or adopted into his father's family. But either way, Abram and Sarai have concocted here a different plan from God's. And rather than trust in God's provision and protection, they do their own thing. And we see the results in verses 14 through 16. Abram gets to Egypt. The Egyptians recognize Sarai's beauty, even to the point of praising her to Pharaoh, the king. And he takes this presumably unmarried woman into his harem. Not once does the couple volunteer that Sarai is already married. And because of Pharaoh's infatuation with Sarai, he bestows favors and tremendous gifts on Abram. He's given servants to care for him. This is probably when Hagar enters into their lives. He is given much livestock, and within the list of items, there are camels. Now, we're used to seeing camels in the Middle East these days, but at this time period, they were very rare and very expensive. This was a lavish present given to Sarai's, quote, brother. So, let me just pause here, and let me ask. Ladies, what would you think of your husband if he sold you into the harem of a stranger and he is set for life? What would you do? What do you think God should do to him? Don't you think God should punish Abram in some way? Take away his promise and say, well, I obviously chose the wrong guy, and then choose someone new? But God doesn't punish Abram at all. Rather, the narrator tells us that Yahweh afflicts Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. We're not told what the plagues were. Considering those described in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we can imagine that whatever they were, they were bad. Nor we're told how Pharaoh discovered that Abram had deceived him. Most likely, the plague affected everyone else in the household except Sarai, and she revealed the ruse. And amazingly, when Pharaoh finds out, he is the one to rebuke Abram, not God. And not only that, he orders Abram to go away and take with him all the gifts that he's given him, and he ordered his men not to harm Abram. This pagan Egyptian pharaoh turns out to be more moral than Abram. So with this tension in mind, let's get to our takeaways from the story, and let's go back to the sermon type. The type of man whom God calls, and the type of God who calls him. Let's first consider Abram. Now, if you're Followed along, there doesn't appear to be anything appealing about Abram from the start. We saw in a previous service that he was a 
pagan, worshiping idols. He is past childbearing years. He's not very trustworthy. He doesn't respond initially to God's call, but only after his father dies in Haran. Then he does respond, and when pressed, he doesn't rely upon God's promises. And on top of that, he lies and trades his wife for treasure? This is the type of man that God calls. And that's the same for every one of us. God calls sinners to himself. His qualifications in whom he calls is not the best character, nor even does it have to be the worst of us. But he calls real living human beings, men and women, boys and girls, who could never stand up to his test of holiness. That is whom God calls sinners. Now, after the service two weeks ago, I had one of our Bible college students ask me for my opinion as to when Abram was saved. Was it here at this calling, or did it happen in chapter 15, verse 6, when Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness? Now, I'm going to pull out my trump card, and I'm going to go with Paul in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a point when a person is able to believe and place their faith upon God and able to recognize what the Lord has done for them through the cross of Jesus Christ. But when exactly God calls you and when you come to saving faith is not near as important as how you end up. Do you keep believing in Christ? Are you being transformed and sanctified after you believe? Because Paul will also write in Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Abram is a model of sanctification of the believer. God will call him. Abram will believe. And Abram will be transformed by belief in that promise as he continues to learn what it means to trust in Yahweh. The same is going to be true for his descendants of Jacob and Judah. We're going to be shocked at just how despicable these men are, and yet God will call them and radically change them. And the same is true for all of us. God calls, we believe, and we are transformed by that belief. But that also reveals to us just how remarkable is the God who calls. Let me point out just four traits about him. First of all, this is a God who always keeps his promises. Just because Abram blows it, God is not done with him yet. Abram stays in the graces with Yahweh because Yahweh has declared that Abram will. Remember, what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Second, this is a patient God. He's not making demands for perfection at the moment that he calls you. He is demanding that you simply trust him. And he wants you to learn how your dependence is upon him and not on your own efforts. History is literally littered with people that 
think they must earn their salvation. But salvation has never been based on a person's moral behavior. It's based upon what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Third, this is a God who has the power to transform a sinful heart and conform it into the image of his Son. Remember when I quoted a little bit earlier from Ephesians 1? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is what God does with his children once they believe in Jesus. He transforms them through the righteousness of Christ into the image of his son, which brings us to his grace and mercy. The reason God can do this is because Jesus justifies the believer at the cross. Jesus takes upon himself the believer's sin. He receives the eternal punishment that the sinner deserves and in exchange grants the one who believes in him his eternal righteousness. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is so powerful. It's so powerful that it extends not just to future believers like us, but also backwards to believers like Abram. Oh, friend, are you a sinner before a holy God? Do you recognize that, that you've blown it, that you've not only rebelled against him, but you not have loved him as you should? If so, you are exactly the kind of person that God calls to himself. You meet the qualifications to receive salvation. All you must do is believe and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross on your behalf. That Christ's sacrifice was completely sufficient to cover your sin. Trust in that alone. That alone. Now, I need to address one more group of people. Those people that think they can somehow lose their salvation. Your salvation is not based upon your promise to God. It is based upon God's promise to you that he will save you. If Abram was saved in the first verses of chapter 12 and it was up to him to keep his promise, then he should have lost it by the end of chapter 12. And if he's saved at chapter 15, then he certainly would have lost it in chapter 20 when he and Sarai pull the same stunt again. But our salvation is not based upon our behavior. Ever. It is based upon the completed work of Christ alone. Weak faith or great faith, faith is in what Jesus did to save you. However, while our behavior can never save us, it can reveal if we are saved. If the Lord has done a work in you, then gradually you will become more sanctified, more holy. Gradually, you'll come to a greater understanding of just how heinous sin is, and you're going to desire to avoid it. So when you struggle, the answer is not be more self-righteous. The answer is love Jesus more. Repent again and again and savor the sweetness of the gospel that Jesus is sufficient to cover your sin once again. That is how he is glorified to the praise of the Father that you recognize that you cannot save yourself, nor can you keep yourself saved, but that only Jesus can save you. Oh, friend, come to this 
patient, merciful, and gracious, promise-keeping God who will transform your life for His glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. How many times have I blown it? Even as I've heard your precious good news and I have believed, I still, Lord, think that somehow I can merit your favor by the way I behave. I still, Lord, ignore sins that I commit on a regular basis. I still, Lord, do not love you with all of my heart, mind, and soul as I should. And because of that, Lord, I can feel deep shame and deep conviction. But thanks be to your Son that my salvation and my standing is not based upon anything that I do. It is based upon what Christ has done at the cross, that he lived a perfect, holy, blameless life, and that at the cross, he made a great exchange, that my sin was placed upon him, and you punished him in my place, and then in exchange, he granted me his righteousness. So that when I stand before you, I stand upon for you as the child whom you love, as Jesus. Oh, Lord, may I never, ever, ever stop cherishing what Jesus has done. May I love his gospel more and more each day. May I turn to him and repent every single hour so that Jesus might be the one glorified, Jesus might be the one praised, and that I might be received into your kingdom. Increase our faith this morning in what Christ has done. Let us know that it is He who holds us fast. We pray this based only on what Christ has done. Amen.